Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. Over the course of the last few months, we've all turned into data nerds. We're interested in both the numbers and the success or failure of our efforts to suppress the virus. We're interested not only in our own figures, but how those figures compare with other countries. Data scientists analyze the information making comparisons and detecting patterns to help chart a safe path out of this crisis. Professor Barry Smith is Digital Chair of Computer Science in University College Dublin and is the Director of the Insight Centre for Data Analytics. Barry, you did a study with Seamus Coffey of UCC on deaths reported on RIP.ie and you compared those with COVID-19 deaths being reported by official sources at the time. You found there was a discrepancy there, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. So there were actually a a few different researchers seem to have independently hit on this idea that one of the unique things about Ireland is that we have RIP.ie as a relatively complete source of death notices. And so it at least allows us to estimate death rates during the COVID-19 period. So when I looked at that and when others looked at that, we found that sure enough, there were more death notices this year during, say, the March-April period than there were in previous years. And you could look at last year, you could look at the last five years or the last 10 years. But there was a significant bump this year, which is not so surprising. Um, But it was greater than the number of COVID-19 deaths, at least according to the official statistics at that time. So it perhaps suggested that either there were some COVID deaths that perhaps were not being reported as COVID deaths, or that there were other deaths that were happening uh, in and around the pandemic that maybe wouldn't have happened as normal in in other years. Um, I think since then, the the difference in RIP notices and the official statistics has begun to close. So I think that probably reflects a better accounting of the deaths uh, due to COVID. You also talk about rebounders and holders and rebounders uh, being countries uh, where people are are starting to move around again and holders uh, where lockdown is being maintained and mobility hasn't really returned. So tell us about that. How have you done your analysis and, and what has that shown? Yeah, this was interesting. So like Manny, I was just wondering on about what are the effects of the lockdown that we're all kind of suffering through. There's been a huge amount of data available for people to explore. Um, Apple and Google, for example, released mobility data information, which is very rough, but it gives you a proxy for how much people are moving about relative to pre-lockdown. So I was able to look at a whole host of countries and see how mobility levels have changed, which is a a proxy for how severe their lockdowns are, and then correlate that with things like uh, daily cases or more recently transmission rate, this or north value of the virus. And as you might expect, you know, most countries follow a similar pattern Uh, A lockdown is introduced, possibly gradually at first. Mobility levels drop over a week or 10 days. So they've dropped and now they're holding at this minimum level. And countries tend to try and keep mobility levels low for maybe six, seven, eight, even 10 or 12 weeks. Uh, And then at a certain point, hopefully during that time, transmission rates drop. And after a set number of weeks, which can vary from country to country, either people get bored and start moving about by themselves 
before countries started to ease their restrictions. Some started earlier than others. Denmark, Germany started earlier than Spain and Italy. That wasn't so surprising. But what happened after people started to move about? Did we start to see spikes in infection rates again? The good news is that we didn't, at least not for the first few weeks, which is which brings us more or less up to date. I think what's happening there is that lockdowns are doing doing three things. Number one, they're squashing the virus. So they're pushing it out of the community because people aren't mixing. Number two, they're giving us time to adjust and to learn how to socially distance. So we become better at socially distancing ourselves because we're more used to it. And number three, I think after 10 weeks in lockdown, we so much want to get back to normal life and don't want to go back into lockdown again. I think we're extra careful when we come out of lockdown. So all of that suggests that even when mobility levels rise, people are being careful. They've learned to adapt. And that's why we don't see the transmission rates spike again. Now, it depends on whether countries leave their lockdown early or later, and there can be different outcomes depending. So in terms of transmission rates, right, and we, we have been become quite fixated here on this this R number and and it being around the, the one mark and um, trying to get it uh, under one and then well under one um, before people started moving around again. And um, what you found is that um, where that transmission rate was well below one before people started moving around again, they have been able to, to keep the transmission rate low. But where the transmission rate was still above one uh, after people started going back to normal, only around half of those have managed to get it below one subsequently. Is that is that the case? That, that's right. Yeah. So I distinguished between um, countries that were more cautious. So they waited until the or not value was well below one before starting to rebound and countries that were a bit more risky. They seem to be rebounding, even though or not had not been brought below one. Uh, and when you compare those those cautious and risky countries, the cautious ones do better. Their or not stays low for longer than the risky countries. Now, having said that, even in the risky risky countries, we do find that the the or not value still fell after they began to rebound. So again, people still know how to socially distance. So there was some protection, I guess, gained from that. Um, but not all of them uh, stayed, got to below one, which is an important threshold for various sort of epidemiological reasons. So I, I think we're, we're doing the right thing to wait as long as we can until we squash this below one. Um, and hopefully then uh, we'll do rather well as we start to bounce back as long as we're careful. So our R rate at the moment is is somewhere between 0.4 and, and 0.6. So can we take this as good news? I think it's my understanding. And again, I'm a data scientist. I'm not a medic or an epidemiologist. But my understanding is that that is good news, that when uh, the R naught is below one, uh, you've to a certain extent, got the virus under control. And I think what we're hearing from uh, those who know a lot more about this than me is that the virus is not in the community in significant numbers. So right now, today, as we move about, we're probably in a good place. 
We have to be really careful, though. And the thing I worry about a little bit is that we move about and we hear that the numbers are still going down and we start to feel good about ourselves and we move about a little bit more and we get a little bit more relaxed and we have barbecues. Um, and the problem is that the, the, the virus is not in the community now, so maybe the risk is lower. But at some stage in the next few weeks, it's going to leak back in. It's going to leak in from the hospitals and from the nursing homes, and it will get back into the community. And if we've become complacent at that time, then there could be another spike. So we could get lulled into a false sense of security for the next couple of weeks, thinking this is great. We're moving about more. We're outside in the sun. And yet the numbers are still going down every night on the news. We hear they're going down. This is great. We've, we've solved it. We can't be complacent like that. Barry, you've also considered the issue of lockdown fatigue, which explores what the data tells us about the strictness of lockdowns being experienced in different uh, countries and what impact lockdowns have on cases and deaths. So first of all, so we would get a sense of it. How heavy has Ireland's lockdown burden been compared to other countries? It's, it's right up there. So the, the, I used the total mobility drop over the period of the lockdown as a rough proxy for the burden, you know, how heavy a weight the lockdown feels to us. Um, and Ireland is up there. It's in the top five or so countries. It's not at the very top. Spain and Italy, as you might expect, are higher. But we're up there. Um and, you know, it looks like we're easing restrictions a bit more cautiously and a bit more slowly. So by the time September comes that around, we may well find that we have carried the greatest lockdown burden um, over the period. We will see. But today we've had a long, hard lockdown uh, and it's been tough. Uh, and I think people are anxious to get out a bit more. You've ranked European countries according to how severe their lockdown is and showing how many deaths there are then per million of, of the population. Uh, so in looking at the chart, you get a sense of whether a country's lockdown severity is proportionate to the deaths relative to other countries. So where does Ireland stand in that mix? Yeah, so you, the, the, what I should say here at the start is you need to be careful about over-interpreting numbers and attributing cause and effect to the data. So. It is certainly the case that the countries with the uh, that have been hardest hit, let's say looking at deaths per capita, they have implemented the toughest lockdowns. Now, um, you couldn't say that uh, the lockdowns have caused those extra deaths, of course. It's more likely that those countries suspected they were going to be hard hit or saw the early evidence and realized they had to implement a tough lockdown. So you can certainly see that Ireland has implemented a, a, a hard, long lockdown, but we've also suffered um, a pretty pretty high death rate per capita. We're not the worst in Europe by any stretch, but we're up there amongst the higher countries in Europe. And when we look at that particular data, what does it tell us about the different responses to the outbreak in different European countries? Yeah, so it, it, again, um, because you've, you've only got a few tens of countries, it's not a, a massive amount of data. Uh, and these things will change as the lockdowns continue and uh, as everything evolves. But one of the things I did notice is that the countries that seem to do well in coping with the virus, so the ones with the lowest cases and the lowest deaths per capita, they tended to lock down earlier than the countries that were hit hardest. Um, maybe only a week or two earlier, but that mattered a lot. 
So they started their lockdown earlier and they ramped it up faster. When you look at the countries, like the 10 worst countries in Europe, they started their lockdown a couple of weeks later on average, and they ramped up a little bit more slowly. It took them a while to get to their peak lockdown. So I think that period of time when you start and how quickly you act is absolutely essential. Um, it might look like you've only a few cases in the country when you start your lockdown, because for most of us, we weren't testing enough to really know how many cases we had. But there will always be more, many, many more cases than you thought at the time. And I, and I think the com countries that have been hit hardest probably had much more mature outbreaks than they even realized at the time. Can we look at something, Barry, called the, the case fatality rate? Um, that's the, the number of people who, who get COVID-19 and, and then die. So according uh, to yourself, uh, in Ireland, that number is about one in, one in 16, whereas in Belgium, it's one in six. Um, but if we look at another chart that you've, you've made that maps the stringency of lockdown against the case fatality rate per country, we see a lot of the countries with the highest case fatality rates also have the most stringent lockdowns, which doesn't uh, completely follow uh, or, or appear to follow. But what would you say about that? I think the problem is that it's very difficult to interpret the, that case fatality rate in particular. People use it a lot, but we've got to realise that um, it depends how you're counting your cases and how you're counting your deaths. It could be, for example, that Belgium, which has the, the worst case fatality rate in Europe, it could be that they are just doing a better job of accounting for their deaths. So they have a much more complete picture of all the deaths that are attributable to COVID than other countries. Um, or it could be that countries that have a low case fatality rate have far more cases. That may sound a bit counterintuitive to people, but of course, you know, if you've got more cases, then your deaths are a much smaller fraction of those cases. And the reason they have more cases is that they've been testing more people. So this all depends on how you count your deaths how much testing you're doing, and then all of the other factors such as the demographics of the population, the ages of the population, the healthcare system, infrastructure, etc. Um, one of the interesting things I found is that I had I'd originally assumed that when we looked at the hardest hit countries, we would find that they would have the toughest lockdowns and the countries that weren't as hard hit would have much lighter lockdowns, but that's not the case. Um, there's almost two extremes. Really hard hit countries have big lockdowns like Ireland and Italy and Spain, and the UK, but then countries that have really coped very, very well, like certainly Eastern European countries, they often have almost as tough lockdowns as we do. So it's almost like there were some countries that had a sense that their outbreak was more mature and they locked down to control it, where there are other countries that locked down early to prevent it. They locked down in similar ways and implemented fairly tough restrictions, and they managed to keep the virus out of their countries. And then there's a third set of countries, Northern European, Scandinavian countries, which have had middle grounds, you know, in, in terms of lockdown stringency, uh, and they've, they've been middling in terms of how well they've coped with the virus. Is it fair to say that if we're trying to figure out why some countries have higher debt rates than others, the answer is it's just too early to say for sure? 
Yeah, I think that's probably the answer for nearly every question that you could ask, really, you know, because it's such a complex set of factors. But I think in particular, uh, unwise for people to rush and point fingers at countries for doing badly in terms of death rates until we know how everyone is counting for their deaths and uh, how differences between countries in terms of testing and case numbers really stack up. What are the lessons that policymakers should draw from from your data? So again, I'll remind you that I'm not an epidemiologist, so I shouldn't be allowed to influence or make policy at all. I'm a data scientist. But with my data science hat on, you know, one of the the things that I think um, is really important here is for countries to release data. You know, that, that has been hugely useful and I'd like to think beneficial at various levels because um, Ireland has been reasonably good at releasing data from early on. There's always room for improvement. And what does that mean? It means that people can get a better handle on what's going on and every country is going to be different. So if we have local data available to us, maybe we can get early sight of the patterns that matter in Ireland that are you know, particularly distinctive to Ireland. And if we can start to figure some of that out, we may get an extra few days to steal a march on the next spike in the virus. And if we've learned anything, it's that acting quickly and decisively is probably a good thing. Um, so I think if we can, can keep, if we make sure that the data continues to flow and as much of it as is feasible is made available, you'll get people like me and others uh, analysing that data and, and hopefully we will start to notice some useful patterns in that data and maybe that will help the policy makers to better interpret what's going on. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back next week. Meantime, enjoy the bank holiday.